Amen. You may be seated if you want to open your Bible. We're actually going to be in Hebrews a lot, so you can turn to Hebrews for there. Uh, if you're new, hanging out with us for the first time online or in person, my name is Christopher, one of the pastors here, and we get to continue our worship uh, as we open up God's Word. Uh, we believe Sundays are a time where we get to interact with God through a lot of different ways, through God's Word, through God's Spirit, God's people, and so that's one of the ways we could do that now is to open up His Word and um, I just want to uh, preface where we're going to go. Uh, I did this last week. We are starting kind of a new rhythm uh, on Sunday for our worship. Uh, so after every message, we are going to be turning to our neighbor. If you are familiar with Formation Sundays, we've done that uh, to kind of recap every series and then help us kind of um, solidify and crystallize where we're needing to obey. We don't want to be hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word, which means we have to slow down and process what the word is speaking to us. And so in order to make that more easy for us accessible, we're going to do that at the end of every message. I know the introverts in the room are like, yeah, no way. Uh, you can find someone right next to you, one person, but I want to prep you beforehand to lead you there that we're going to be doing that at the end of every message. And uh, today's question, just so you can mull over, is simply sharing with neighbor, what is one reflection or conviction that God put on your heart through the scriptures? So just so you know, as you search through and hear God's word this morning, I want you to be thinking through, God, what are you saying to me? Not what are you saying from Pastor Chris to my neighbor, not to my husband, not to my spouse, not to whatever, but just to me. What are you saying? And then we'll be able to process, pray together, and then we'll receive communion. So maybe seventh, no, seventh sermon out of eight. We have one more next week, which I'm so excited to end uh, Exodus 34 uh, these last two months, ending with our time in Exodus, um, and then we'll go on some really fun stuff the next couple of weeks with our anniversary coming up, uh, Pastor Spencer's last message. I'm not cheering for that. It's kind of a sad emoji face, but it'll be a beautiful time next uh, two weeks. But we're going to continue Exodus, going through this to kind of open up our minds of what is God doing through the Scriptures, not just the Old Testament. Like, like, that's old. New Testament is new, and that's better. Like God did, did some stuff with Israel in the past that has everything to do with us today. It's not just a history lesson. It shows us who we are today. So I want to just answer the question. If you're taking notes, got two questions, really two sides of the same coin. How is our relationship with God different than Israel's relationship with God? We're looking through Exodus, and we've seen how Israel has related to God, the people of God. There's some things we would say, man, that's not the same that's, Israel had to do that. Do we have to do that? God treated them that way. Does God treat us that way? And so we want to know, how is Israel's relationship, how were they relating to God, and what's the main difference between their relation to God and our relation? There is uh, some very large differences that actually practically affect your life. And that goes to the second question, just a maybe different way to say it, is how does Jesus' life and death change the way we approach God? As Nee read the scriptures in Hebrews, you're going to see that we're going to go through some old and new covenant teaching. Jesus came and he enacted something on top of Israel's covenant. He fulfilled the law we saw last week. So how does his life and death change the way we approach God? And maybe a simple reason why this matters is I would hate for us to be living like old covenant people under a new covenant. Did you know that was possible? It's so possible to live like 
old covenant people under the new covenant. We can live like Jesus didn't do what he did, even though he did do what he did. Just because Jesus did what he did doesn't mean that it automatically uh, like, turns you into a robot to act. There is some response. There is some acknowledgement. There is awareness. There is changing how you see God and yourself in light of Jesus. So I don't want to live like old covenant people under the new covenant. That's going to be frustrating for you. You're going to feel lifeless and, uh, and weary. Second reason why this matters is I, I'm really convinced you can only take advantage of what you know you have access to. You can only take advantage of what you know you have access to. Uh, I've used this illustration a lot, but let's say that someone died in your family and uh, ended up giving you a million dollars in your bank account or in their bank account that was for you, inheritance for you. But you grew up and you had no clue that was there. So you had to struggle through poverty, you had to miss out on things, you couldn't pay for your kids' education always, or the clothes on their back, shoes on their feet, and you had to go through life when you had that available to you. And the only reason why you didn't tap into that was because you didn't know you had access to it. Knowing what you have access to helps you to take advantage of those things. And what if Jesus, uh, through his life and death, accomplished something so beautiful that he opened up access to God in such a new way, but you didn't know clearly what he opened up to you, so therefore you're not taking advantage of it. Again, that would be a shame and a waste for us. It's not that God's holding out. It's that God's put everything on the table, and I don't want to be the kind of followers of Jesus that leaves stuff on the table when it's ours for the taking. And so if you're here this morning and you're like, Chris, how is this laying with my life? I'm just struggling to follow Jesus, or I'm just feeling stagnant, or I'm just, I got other problems. I want you to know that all the problems that you have in your life can stem back to your relationship with God and your access to God. God's not a genie, but he certainly affects every issue in your life and every problem if you allow him to. Yes or yes? If you allow God to access your life, if you allow God access into the things, if you go into the access that Jesus brought, then this is going to change how you perceive life and perceive Jesus and yourself. So the outline is really simple. We're going to work through the Old Covenant. Uh, the Old Covenant, which I want you to see in Exodus, kind of what was that all about? We call it old just because it was before the new, but it's not bad. It's just different. The old covenant, the new covenant that Jesus brought, and simply the practical difference that it makes. Again, I don't want to, I don't want to teach just to be hearers. I want to be doers. So we're going to land the plan on how this actually practically affects. No, check, check. Okay. So the Old Covenant. Last week we talked about the law, the 613 commandments that Israel is, re is receiving by God, all this stuff to do, don't do this, do this sacrifice, relate to me on this day, take this day off, treat people like this. There were so many things that God told Israel to do. And what this meant was that the law that Israel had been received by God, was receiving by God, was actually a covenant with them. It was like a contract or an agreement. It was this beautiful, sacred agreement where God said, here's this law, and here's the things that I want you to do. Here's what I'm going to do, and we're agreeing together around this set of expectations. It wasn't just a code or a rule book. It was an agreement between God and his people, an agreement between one another. We can see in Exodus 24 right here what happens. Then Moses took the book of the covenant. That's another way to say Moses took the, the, the laws that he had written down from God. 
These are how you're going to interact with me. Moses took the book of the covenant, read it in the hearing of the people. And I love Israel's, uh, <laughs> they just get it. They, they jump with enthusiasm. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Raise your hand if you know the rest of the story. Are they obedient? <laughs> no. Like right after this, I can imagine God is being like, okay, yep, uh-huh. But all that the Lord has spoken, all the commands, we're going to do and we're going to be obedient. And Moses took, catch this, this is so significant for later. He took the blood of this animal that sacrificed, the bull, and he threw it on the people. For our culture, that would be like, it would just, we would faint. Like, what's, going, what's happening right now? Back then, it was so symbolic that a covenant was not enacted and agreed upon and fulfilled or uh, started until the blood of an animal was sprayed on the people and on the book. There's something beautiful about this, this urgency that this is what's happening and this blood is almost like they would walk through these dead animals and say, this is what would happen to me if I don't fulfill my side of the covenant. This is what will happen to me. So behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So it's serious. Israel is sitting there and it's serious. Now, we're not here to bash the old covenant because the law and the covenant was good. Last week, if you haven't watched the sermon, you can go online and, and see it. It's beautiful. You see that the law wasn't like all about works and, and God's all about grace and Jesus. No, there were threads of the gospel in the law, threads of grace in the law. It was a good covenant. It helped Israel relate to God. Remember, they had just been 430 years as a nation under the tyranny of Egypt and they only knew those rules. And so they treated people according to Egypt's rules. They had no law from God. So now this is a new way to live where they would realize this is how I treat God. This is how I treat my neighbor. It taught them how to relate to others. It defined their new relationship. It was beautiful. You can go to the next slide, Daniel. Because it actually helped them see this is how I act as the people of God. Beautiful. We need that in our relationship with God. And it was helpful, so helpful for them to have context on how do I relate to God. But look at what Nee read earlier, Hebrews 8, 7. Look at what it says. The law and the covenant was helpful. But the author of Hebrews says, if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, there would have been no need for a second one. That makes sense, right? He's not saying that there was something like sinful about it. In fact, we know later on what was wrong with the first covenant was more about the people than actually covenant. But the people who said they were going to obey everything and they didn't, not God. The law is perfect and holy, uh, Paul says. But there was something wrong with the first covenant, and that's why God made a second covenant. There was something that wasn't, like, this wasn't what our relationship is supposed to be like. And so because of your hard hearts and your situation, there had to be a new covenant made that would be a more better covenant, a more fruitful covenant for the people of God. So the question should be really simple. What was the problem with the old covenant then? What, what was the issue? Like this is God's agreement with the people, we sprinkle blood, lightning and thunder on the mountain. This was a holy and sacred moment. So what is the, the issue with the old covenant? What's wrong with it? They, they were in relationship with God. That was, that was beautiful. What was the issue? Why did Jesus have to come then? Because they were already in relationship with the holy God. 
turn to Hebrews 7. I'm just going to put together a string of verses that the author of Hebrews talks about. It's so, so interesting that we're actually in Hebrews in our Bible, if you're reading with us. It's so often that every time we are teaching on something, that it aligns with the scriptures, and there's, that's not on purpose, uh, but there's something that's behind there, and it's beautiful. And so Hebrews is a whole book kind of tying in and explaining the Old Testament. If you don't know anything about the Old Testament and you don't read it, you should be reading through Hebrews because it's like a commentary on what God did with the people of Israel. And here's a couple of verses I string together just to see what the author is saying about the Old Covenant. What was the problem with it? For starters, he says, the law never made anything perfect. Okay, wow, the law is good, but the law never made anything perfect. You see the difference between the law still being perfect but never making anyone perfect? The law was good, no problem with the law, but it never made anyone perfect. He goes on to say, the law appoints high priests who were limited by human weaknesses. All the sacrifices that we read in the Old Testament that are just so there, every page, sacrifices, they were done by priests and high priests that would go into God's presence. And they were weak, sinful people. They had to offer sacrifices for their own sins on top, on top of the people's sins. Thirdly, Israel did not remain faithful to the covenant. So the Lord turned his back on them. That was part of the deal. Hey, if you're faithful with this and I'll stick around, but if you, because you say you're going to fulfill all the, the covenant and obey, if you do not keep up your side, Israel, we see later on, most of the nation did not even get to go into the promised land. Again, nothing wrong with the covenant. They just couldn't fulfill their side of the covenant. And so God turned his back on them. And lastly, we read in Hebrews 10, 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Wait, what? So God had them do sacrifices, but that didn't take away sins? Yeah. It temporarily cleansed them, but it did not deal with their sin at a ultimate level. Can you see how the author of Hebrews would say, there is something that is not right with the covenant in the terms of it being perfect in serving the people of God? This is not a good setup when in regards to how do I relate with God. There are issues here. I said it this way, just summarizing it. Number one, the law prescribed correct behavior. It's written on stones and is given to the people. Moses gets it from God. He hands it over and says, here, Israel, here's what you're supposed to do. Nothing wrong with that. But it's good to know that they weren't changed people. They had gone from, Israel, from Egypt to Israel, but nothing happened in their heart that changed. It was all external. And so now it's just behavior being prescribed. You have to live a certain way. And let me tell you, it's hard to keep 10 commandments, let alone 613 commandments. And vice versa, I don't know how someone can, can not do all these things. It's for our sinful heart looking at this, you, just, you see this and you say, this is a mountain that I cannot climb. So they see this huge mountain, and it, all it did was just prescribe correct behavior. Number two, the daily sacrifices that they had to make didn't erase their sin, ever. Can you imagine? Underneath that statement is the idea that you're never really right with God. Just sit, sit in that for a moment. You're, you're the people of Israel. God is pre, God's presence is in his temple, his tabernacle but you know you're never really right with God, so you have to keep on making sacrifices to get right in that moment. But because it couldn't do the real thing it had to do, you have to keep on making sacrifices. 
to be cleansly enough to actually enter into God's presence. Number three, Israel's mediators had their own sin. Number four, they had limited access to God. Only the priests can go into the, the holy place, and only the high priest can go into the holy of holies where God's presence dwelt. So that means one person out of maybe hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in the nation of Israel, only one person, one time a year, can go into God's presence. It's interesting that Johan mentioned this multiple times, that, that we are in God's presence. Do we believe that we're in God's presence right now? Yes. Can you imagine that whatever you feel or don't feel when you're in God's presence at different moments of your Christian life, that they only have one person one time a year being able to go into God's presence? And then lastly, disobedience that led to judgment. They disobeyed over and over again, and God was he's merciful, and he, but sooner or later, their disobedience, it severed the contract and they, or the covenant, and they were out. It wasn't the covenant that God had ultimately desired. They were on the outside looking in. Can you imagine being in relationship with God, being on the outside looking in like everyone else gets, to, or these people, special people can interact with God, but you're always on the outside. I mean, even when you were unclean, even if you didn't sin, but you had a cut or different things, you had to go outside the camp. You had to stay away from God's presence. You could not enter if you were unclean. Lord knows we will all be outside the camp if that was the case for now. We're unclean all the time. We never would have access to God. They were never in right relationship. They were unchanged at heart. Can you imagine them saying, God said, here's all these commandments. You can go to the next slide. Here's all these commandments, but there is no power for you to be able to fulfill and do these commandments. That sounds rough. Here's all these things to do, but you are still the same person, powerless, controlled by sin. And so good luck trying to fulfill them. Lastly, they were cut off as they rebelled. I think we both can agree, all, all of us can agree, that this is not the way God intended relationship to be between him and humanity. This is not the way that, that God intended relationship to be. It's definitely not the way that God uh, explains relationship in the New Testament. But that's a real reality for the people of Israel for Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. They had to live like that outside of God's presence. Check what Hebrews 10.1 says. I love this. The author of Hebrews kind of transitions and gives us a clue of what to look for. He says the old system, that was the old covenant. This broken thing that didn't really allow people to interact with God fully under the law of Moses was only a shadow. A dim preview of the good things to come. Not the good things themselves. Okay, so we're getting a clearer picture. The law and the covenant wasn't bad, but it was a shadow of the good to come. It was a copy. It was a foreshadowing of something better to come. This was not the end goal. We're supposed to trace the shadow up to the sun, and that's the thing that we're supposed to look at. He goes on to say in Hebrews 8 later on, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, catch this, as the covenant mediates, he mediates, is better. Let's say that word together. One, two, three. Better. Okay, let's say it a little bit louder. One, two, three. Better. 
This is the Bible talking. This is God saying that the covenant that Jesus mediates between God and man is better since, why is it better? Since it's enacted on better promises. Better promises. The promises of the old covenant were great for Israel because they were never in relationship with God, but they weren't the best promises. They weren't the best promises. So what is better about the new covenant? If that was broken compared to the new covenant, then what is better about the new covenant? What's different? I know Jesus died and, and resurrected, but, but how does that really change me as a person relating to God? Maybe you're in here and you've been walking with the Lord for 30 years. Maybe you're in here and you're trying to follow, follow and figure out Jesus for the first time. You're not really sure where you land on the spectrum. No matter where you are at in the spectrum of your discipleship to Jesus, it's so important to know what you have access to. You're going to need to know what Jesus bought for you. And I want to just go through that. This is an, a gospel infusion of encouragement, I hope, lands on your heart. And we were praying this morning before the service that it would create rest. I know Labor Day is all about people taking time off, and it's great. So happy for people who are going camping and resting. But there's also, how many of you know there's a rest from, like, like your home, and there's a rest in your heart? There's a rest from work at your job, and there's a rest in your mind. And uh, the Lake Tahoe trips are great, but they might not always give you the rest in your anxious and restless heart and mind. The gospel does that. So what is better about the new covenant? Four things. Number one, Ezekiel eleven nineteen through 20. Check this out. It's a prophecy looking towards Jesus, the new covenant. And I will give them, God is saying, one heart. In a new spirit, I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Here's the purpose. So that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. Can I just stop? That's some good news. Your heart, the Bible says, is changed so that you are able to obey God. Your heart is changed so you can obey God, so that they may be able to walk in my statues and keep my rules and obey them. Why did Israel not keep, not obey, obey, obey? Because their hearts weren't changed. Their hearts weren't changed. We know how hard it is with hearts that are changed. Can you imagine not having a heart that's changed, a heart that is stoned, and trying to obey? And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. How beautiful. There's a sense underneath that. If you like double-click that and say, man, what is God saying? He's saying, no matter how much they mess up, I'm not leaving them. Israel, I said deuces after a while. Kind of like parents do after the kids just keep wiling out and they're tired. They're like, you're, you're going to bed. I don't care if it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm giving you some melatonin, you're going to bed. I need some quiet time. I'm not sharing that because it's a real-life lesson. I own stock in melatonin. Don't, don't at me. Um, no, I'm going to be with you forever. Whether you wild or not, how much you disobey or not, I, I'm your God. I'm sticking with you. I'm sticking with you. Here's what that looks like in real life. There's a transition from a resistant heart to a responsive heart. See, Israel's heart was resistant. Your heart before Jesus was fully resistant, which meant that you might have done some good things. It's not saying you can't do good things, 
but it's saying that ultimately when your heart is held up to God's standard and God's rules, your heart resists wanting to follow it. But Chris, I, I did some good stuff. Yeah, it doesn't mean you can't do good stuff. It means ultimately your heart is at odds with God's law. Resistant. That's why it says hard heart, a stone. You can't mold stone. Your heart was hard. God could have not changed your heart to look like his. It was not happening. But because of Jesus, what he did, now you have a responsive heart. Do you know that? You're like, Chris, I don't feel like a responsive heart. I get it. But you got to know what you have so you can appreciate it. You have a responsive heart. If you know, love and know and trust in Jesus, your heart wants to, at the deepest level, obey God. You know what my heart wanted to do at the deepest level before I was a Christian? I'm not going to say it on stage, but this definitely was not obeying God. It was not obeying God. My heart wasn't to, to be humble and to obey God and to honor him and to know him and to love him. But this is how I know I got changed and saved. This is how you should know you got changed and saved. How do I know I'm a Christian? Because your heart changed. There's a desire. Yeah, but Chris, I don't, I'm not following. Yeah, yeah, that follows. But before you follow the rules, you have to delight to follow the rules. Before you start fulfilling all the commands, you got to have a heart that wants to fulfill the commands, that wants to honor God. So before you're looking at all this outside stuff, look at your heart. Is there a heart that's responsive? He gives us a responsive heart. I love Philippians 2. It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to give you the desires, the longings, and the ability to do what pleases him. That's some good news, y'all. God is working in you to give you the ability and the desire to do what pleases him. It's not, oh, I got to dry and dutifully just kind of follow God. No, you know why you have any ounce of obedience in you? It's because God gave you the desire and the ability to obey. It's a setup in the best way. You see, if you go back to, go back real quick to Ezekiel, uh, Daniel, I want you to see something. I want you to notice how God says, I will give them, and I will put within them, and I will remove. What is God saying? The old covenant was about them doing things for God, making sure they stayed in alignment with God. The new covenant is God doing things for us. From an external duty, next slide, to an internal desire. The law was written on stone, but the new covenant says the law is now written on our hearts. It goes from something you have to like look at and say, well, I, just, I have to follow because I have to follow to now, the Bible says in Jeremiah that God's not going to even have to teach you how to follow him because you're going to want to from the inside out. Before it was outside in, now it's I want to and you start to seek him. And this is supposed to be encouraging and challenging because we want to know what Jesus gave us access to, but also this is supposed to be a kind of measuring line to say, is this what I'm experiencing? That is your heart responsive? I'm not saying every moment, but is there an overarching responsiveness to your heart where you desire God? That he gives you the desire to obey him. Number two, Hebrews 9 says this, so beautiful, powerful. Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. How? By the sacrifice of himself. And when sins have been forgiven, oh, this is so simple, but so beautiful. And when sins have been forgiven, what? There was no need to offer any more sacrifices. Simply put, the reason why Israel had to keep offering sacrifices 
was because it never really did anything to change their hearts and to make them right before God. So no wonder you have to keep it was temporarily cleansing them because there's life in the blood. Uh, Leviticus says there's no forgiveness without the, or no remission of sins without the, the, the shedding of blood. There was life in the blood. But it never did anything because these were just goats and bulls. And so the shift goes from daily sacrifices to one final sacrifice. And that, that, you might not be like, well, that's a big change for me. Yeah, I know Jesus died for me, but I want you just to put perspective, put your perspective into the context of Israel. What if you had to keep getting up every day and doing some kind of ritual to make sure that you were right with God? Here's a different question. How are you still trying to get up every day and doing your rituals to make sure you're right with God? Now, Chris, I don't make sacrifices. Yes, but you like get, you read the Bible just to make sure because you sinned night before, you read your Bible because you're like, I got to make sure that God, I'm right with God. I'm going to church, not because I really want to, but I'm here because I did a whole bunch of bad stuff this week and I want to be right with God. We don't, want, we don't have to do that anymore. The things that were able to give us forgiveness were not something we could do, something that Jesus finally did. From always working to be right with God to actually living out of being right with God. You know how exhausting that would be to have to wake up every day and say, what do I need to do to be in right relationship with God so he's not angry with me but loves me? And I wonder, just because I know people, maybe there's some of you this morning that would wake up and think that God is angry with you and you are in right relationship with him because you've messed up and failed. And I just want to say that is um, the opposite of what Jesus came to do and to give you. You might feel like you failed a thousand times, but the point is that the one sacrifice that Jesus did was once and for all because he was perfect. That means his forgiveness is not temporary, but perfect and final. You are living out every day a right relationship with God. Whether you feel like it or not, that is what you have access to, a right relationship with God. Because back then, they had to go on the outside. They had to be outside until they were cleansed. Do you know you have access to God's presence, even in your sin? Chris, I can never, like, pray after I've looked at pornography or slept with a girlfriend or do this. I can never open my Bible. I feel guilty. Do you know the gospel? Do you, do you just stop for a second? Jesus did that so that you could go right to God in your sin because he got rid of your sin. So as you have sinned, you might feel so guilty, so horrible, and feeling so distant from God. But let me tell you, God does not feel distant from you. He has not moved an, a, an inch away from your presence when you have sinned. Because if he was moving away from you because of your dirtiness, then Jesus' sacrifice wasn't final and ultimate. But his sacrifice was final and ultimate, which means everything that makes you dirty has been removed from you. Total forgiveness. Number three, Hebrews 10, 19. So beautiful. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, he says, we have confidence. Confidence. Say that with me. We have Confidence. Oh, I love that. I need some confidence. We have confidence 
to enter the holy places by your Bible reading. No. We have confidence to enter the holy places because I love people well. No. We have confidence to enter the holy places because I, no, nothing but get you out of it. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the what? Blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Back then, there were multiple curtains that you had to go through that led you into the holy place and the holy of holies. That's why when Jesus died on the cross, you read in Matthew and Luke, I think, where the curtain, what? Gets torn. Physical and spiritual uh, illustration that the presence and access to God's presence is now open for everyone, not just a few. From having limited access to God to having unrestricted access access to God. That's a big change. From you never being able to go in God's presence and to talk with him and to receive help from him to now you can walk into God's presence at any given moment and be in God's presence asking him for help. Do you believe that? Any given moment you can walk in but Chris, no, 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 but you, did you know what I've done? I've yelled at my kids, I've done this stuff. No, 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 no. And God would say to us, stop looking at what you've done. Look at how Jesus did what he did. That's your right and passage into my presence. It was never about what you did or didn't do. You don't get to go into God's presence because of what you've done. You get to go into God's presence because of what Jesus has done. And by faith, receiving the gift of his grace, you get to walk in, not just walk in like, I'm here, God. What does the Bible say? Confidence, boldness. You walk in, you say, I'm here, and I'm going to ask for help, even while I'm messed up. And God's not saying, get out and wait till you get some stuff together. He's not saying, get your act together. He's not saying, clean yourself up. You know what he says when you walk in there all messed up? Welcome, my son, my daughter. What do you need? Confidence means that when you go in, you know that God's going to receive you and respond to you. The next side is simply said, from a fearful distance to a confident closeness. You know, some of us feel like there's fear, not because of like a reverential fear, but a fear like I just... God's angry at me and I have to stay away. You know, my kids feel it sometimes when, when I lose my cool, or I, or I, they could tell I'm angry that there is a fear. Like, I don't want to be next to dad or mom because they're angry with me. And we do the same thing with our Father in heaven. We project anger on God. We project, we project our own ways of dealing with our kids and the way that our Father has dealt with us and our mother and put that on God, but that's not fair to God. God is a Father, but he's not, he wasn't your father on, 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 on earth. He wasn't your imperfect mother or father. He doesn't discipline you like your parents have done. You don't have to have a fearful distance. You can have a confident closeness where you can be with him knowing he's going to receive you. And that changes how you interact with God. I think it by saying this. Number one, God makes us clean by his own blood. So important Someone asked me a couple weeks ago, saying, thankful for 
you know, the fact that we talk about Jesus every week and, you know, we're talking about the gospel and else new. Like we're going to say the same thing in different ways. Why? Why do we keep talking about Jesus and his sacrifice? I would say one of the biggest reasons, the main reasons why we keep on talking about the gospel is because we're so good at forgetting it. We're so good at forgetting it. Thanks, Kalina. So good at forgetting it. So good at saying, I know it's true, I believe it, but practically it's not landing on my heart. It's not changing how I interact. And the thing that we have to fight and, and, and work towards is making what we know is true be real for us in the moment. Because the gospel isn't some facts on a bookshelf. It's reality for your life right now. He makes us clean by his own blood. Number two, he changes our hearts to obey him. Number three, he invites us into his very presence. God makes and accomplishes this covenant. Not the people of Israel, not you. God makes the covenant and God accomplishes the covenant. There was nothing you did to fulfill your side of the agreement besides receiving the gift of Jesus. But Chris, wouldn't that like allow people just to do whatever they want? We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. When you really understand the gospel of grace, you are charged with the desire to obey, not a license to say I can do what I want. When you really understand what Jesus has done for you, that the God of this universe, let's just stop for a moment. The God of this universe, we hopefully believe most of us here that God is real. He's the God of this universe. And that we have access to the God of the universe fully and freely forever. Wouldn't that change how we live? Wouldn't that change how you interact with people? Wouldn't that change how you feel when you mess up and you, when you obey? Wouldn't that change because he did it? What difference does this make? Let me end with some practical steps. What difference does this make? Okay, has done, but what difference does that make in how we relate to God? I want to end with just a few more scriptures, and we're going to be able to just process together as a, a people of God. Hebrews 4 says this, since then we have a great high priest. Who's the great high priest? That was weak. Okay, who's the great high priest? Jesus, he's the great high priest. We have a great high priest, the one that mediates God and man, a relationship, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Oh, my gosh. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. God doesn't understand what I'm going through. He's perfect. No, no, no. The Bible says that Jesus has been tempted in every respect as you have been, yet he hasn't sinned. One of the Puritans said it this way. He said, because we can say, oh, Jesus doesn't know what it's like because he never had sin. He was tempted but never had sin. But he gave an example of this. When you're in a storm and the wind is pushing back on you, if the wind is strong, and say we're the first person in the story, and we just give up. Ten feet into the path, we give up because the wind's too strong. 
then what is the difference between Jesus and us? That Jesus, he's being tempted. The wind's pushing against him, but he goes all the way to the eye of the storm. So while you think he doesn't understand what you're going through, you've only tasted 10% of the temptation. He's tasted all the temptation. So when you talk about Jesus doesn't understand, you're right in one way. He hasn't been only 10% tempted. He's been 100% tempted in all the things that you have been tempted in. That has to be the case because he's our high priest. And when on the cross, it wasn't just metaphorical. All the sins of humanity were put on him. Experientially, that weight was on him. He's our high priest, and he's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Look at, I just want to say this few things to you. Would you just look in my eyes as much as possible? I'm going to look at a screen, but look up here. Jesus, when he's a high priest, it says that he's, he's able to sympathize with you. That means a few things. Number one, Jesus is not looking at you with disgust. Jesus does not look at you with disgust. You might look in the mirror and feel disgust because you keep sinning with the same issues and the same problems, shame and condemnation. But can I tell you, because he's able to sympathize with you, understands what you've gone through, he's not looking at you with disgust. Number two, Jesus is not running out of patience with you. Your boss might run out of patience with you. Your parents might run out of patience with you, and they have, and they lashed out. But Jesus has an unending well of patience that goes because he is your father, and you are his child. He's not going to run out of patience with you. You're not on the last strand. Number three, Jesus understands your struggles and sins. What sweet comfort that brings when I'm struggling with whatever you might be struggling with. You put it to fill in the blank. That Jesus is not up here saying, come on, come to me. He's beside me saying, I know what you've been through and I'm going to help you. What a difference to know. Jesus isn't up here saying, come to me on this mountain, but walking beside you saying, I, I felt what you have felt. And lastly, he can relate to you in a very real way. It's kind of hard, right? Let's just be honest that we think that God can relate to us. as God and we're us. How does that work out? The scripture came to mind. I just want to read it real quick. I think it tells perfectly Hebrews 2. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He was fully human so he can help you in all your humanity. So next time you say, God doesn't understand what I'm going through, that's a lie from the devil, not the gospel truth. He understands. Therefore, okay, he's not disgusted with me. He's not running out of patience with me. He understands my sin. What does that cause me to do? Here's what the author says next. Okay, if that's true, let us then with bold confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we, may, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. How do you respond to the truth that Jesus is sympathetic towards your weakness? You don't just stay aloof and cold and distant. You draw near to God with confidence and boldness 
and asking for grace in the time of need. And you're not just drawing near to some random thing. You're drawing near to the throne of grace. From one person being able to go to the throne to now every single one of us with bold confidence drawing near to the throne. That's amazing that you can go to God and find help when you need it. There's just some implications what that means. Number one, we should go to God, not run away. Oh, Chris, that's so elementary. Yes, but when you sin and you've fallen short and you haven't done what you're supposed to do, your natural inclination is to do what Adam and Eve did, and they ducked out. They hid behind some trees, acting like God couldn't see them. And your ducking out is the same foolishness as my ducking out, as theirs. We're over here hiding, not going to group, not talking to people, not texting back, not doing it ever, hiding in our shame. And God's like, number one, I see you, bro. And number two, you don't have to hide. Jesus opened up access so you can walk into his presence, not have to run away. Number two, approaching God with confidence means you're coming in with a joyful expectation. He wants to help you. Here's what I want to land. Number three, asking for grace when we're in need. It's so simple, right? But I don't know, maybe it's just me and I struggle with this, but I'm really in need. Like I pray and I ask God for help, but the moments when I'm really in need or the moments when I'm, I'm tempted or the moments when I feel weak, am I simply going to God because I have full access to him and to his resources and his mercy? And we just boil everything down to that one point, but because Jesus has opened up access to, his, to God's presence, you can go in and ask for help and mercy in the time of need. Let me preface that again. It's not when you have gone through the battle and you come out victorious that you can walk into God. You don't walk into God standing tall and whatever. You're walking into God limping but confident that he loves people who limp into his presence. He loves people who come in broken. He loves people who come in messy. He lo- you know why? Because he just wants you to come to him. So church, let me ask you, Are you going to God or running from him? Not generically, but in a specific area of your life. If Jesus had bought us full access, why would we want to run from God in an area of our life when he holds the keys to our problems and the grace for our gaps? We're not saying do all these things. We're saying simply believe the gospel and pray like God has full access. You have full access to him that you know that God is always for you. Knowing that God is always for you. What does this look like? Hopefully, and stir up some conversation for these next few moments. Number one, not moving away because of shame, not staying outside because of fear, and then drawing near often in honest prayer. If you have shame, the idea isn't to move away, but to go close. If you have fear, the idea isn't to stay outside, but to go in because you can have confidence. And that you would have honest prayer. We talk a lot about bringing the real us to the real Jesus. That means bringing the jacked up version of yourself to the really gracious savior of the world. I'm thankful that we don't have to do a whole bunch of steps and twists and turns. That's, that's it. Bringing the real us to him, knowing that we have full access. So I want you to take a few moments processing this. There's something for all of us, hopefully an encouragement, uh, maybe a correction on how we see God or how we see ourselves. Make this practical, not theoretical. 
what we would never want to do is just waste our time being high-minded theory, never getting down to our own life. Make it practical about you. What is one reflection, one conviction that you can share with the neighbor? You don't have to be fancy, be honest, but let's just take five more minutes, process with each other before we receive communion and end with worship. What is one reflection or one conviction that you feel through the gospel message and the scriptures that you can share with one another? You can share now, have one person pray at the end, and then we will receive, I'll lead us through a time of communion. So go ahead and find someone next to you and share if you can. We'll have some music on, and we'll be back in five to six minutes.